Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Feeding the Soil for Improved No-Till Results, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Lauren Steinlogge is a no-tiller and soil health advocate from West Union, Iowa, and the owner-operator of Flolo Farms. His ever-evolving practices have taken his farm from a full-time dairy with a lot of corn-on-corn acres to his current focus on cover crops, diversity, interseeding, and even organic no-till. Doug Newton grows peanuts, corn, cotton, soybeans, and wheat in Marlboro County, South Carolina, and has been using no-till and strip-till techniques since the early 1990s. Since adding cover crops a few years ago, he says he's seen a big improvement in his sandy loam soils. In today's podcast, Doug and Lauren get together to talk no-till, comparing notes about their experiences, the soil health and other benefits they've seen from the practice, lessons learned along the way, and much more. And I'm Doug Newton, farm in Marlboro County, South Carolina, coastal plains of South Carolina. Sandy soils, we have Marlboro Sandy Loam is the, the best soil that we farm, a good sandy loam. We've been no-tilling since about 92 or 93. I went out to Milan, Tennessee to a research center in western Tennessee that was doing no-till. And at that time, there was a field that had been in continuous no-till for 14 years and right beside it, one that was conventionally tilled. And they demonstrated that when it rained, the soil in the the no-till area, the water coming off of it was virtually clear. And that was an eye-opener. So I came home and I planted five acres of no-till cotton. From that point, my question was, can I keep this cotton clean without a plow? My whole career prior to that had been disc and plow and all the conventional things that you do to keep a crop clean and try to make a living. And we were able to keep that cotton clean with a red ball sprayer, which has since gone to the junkyard. We don't use those anymore. But the next year, I could not bring myself to no-till, although I had success with five acres of no-till, I went and got a strip-till rig. And strip-tilled up until about six or seven years ago when I met a guy named Buzz Clute. He did a soil health conference or seminar or meeting at the Methodist Church in Clio, South Carolina. And at that meeting, I just had an awakening that if we take care of the dirt, the dirt will take care of us. And so we've been no-till, not 100%. We still have that hard pan to deal with in the coastal plains. I think a few more years from now, we will not have to subsoil, but I'm in a rotation. I'll subsoil part of the farm this year part of the farm the next year, about a three-year rotation, and use a strip-till rig on the cotton and the peanuts and use a DMI tillage tool on the corn and the soybeans. I've seen an increase in earthworm population. I've seen an increase in organic percentage. We were told we'd never be able to make this organic percentage go up, which we 
we did make it go up. Well, we didn't make it go up. We allowed it to go up. Worked closely with Buzz Clute and several other people. We have a good core group in our area of farmers that have bought into this soil health and the different systems that go along with that. We've seen some pretty dramatic results. I just feel like we're on the right track. I think we can save a little bit of money. I think we can make the soil healthier. I think when we make the soil healthier, I think we can make the product healthier. It's just been a good journey. And how about you? Sounds eerily familiar. We started back in the 80s. We were corn on corn on corn with some alfalfa intermixed. With the dairy and all that stuff, we still had livestock and all that. But then as we evolved, you know, we had manure, so it was hard for us to incorporate manure, so we kept relying on the crutches. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 96, finally got to listen to the doctor long enough that I had to get away from livestock and all that. So that started opening the doors, but I, as you said, still needed the crutches with strip till and stuff like that with our corn on corn rotation. But I think it was about 2006, I started playing with interseeding in corn. Yeah, 2006 started interceding in corn, and we started seeing what the value of diversity did for us. So then we brought soybeans back in the mix. As we started playing around, we started bringing wheat and rye and barley now in the mix. And now we got buckwheat in there. If the weather cooperates, we'll throw that in there. What that started to allow us to do is, you know, we we're getting to the point where we're using a lot less fertility. You know, we're not relying on the fertility to make the difference, we're starting to rely on biology. You know, and probably the last two years, one of the neatest plots I've been involved in is we were challenged to help bring no-till organics into the mix by Dr. Aaron Silva. And I tell people it's probably the ugliest plot I've ever done, but it's the most knowledge I've ever gained out of a test plot. We're starting to learn what it's like to do without. Just for the simple fact, you know, Christine Jones tells us we should not need nitrogen in corn. We're starting to build organic matter, just like you said. And I like how you said you allow it to gain. That's kind of a neat principle. But Christine Jones starts talking quorum sensing, and I think until you truly go without, you're never going to see that. We've got no-till organic corn that's probably going to do close to 200 bushel an acre with zero applied fertility. No manure? Well, it had pen-pack swine manure last fall, gotcha. but it's corn on corn in a simulated no-till organic fashion. We've seen enough this year that, granted, I haven't harvested it yet, but uh, we're gonna push forward uh, year three on a corn-on-corn -corn organic system just wow. to see how far we can take it. Wow. Some of the fun part where I'm at in the world, unlike you, I don't have a community around me doing a lot of the stuff we're doing. So a lot of what I've done is trial and error by myself. We think we're building a community around us, but everybody else, the almighty dollar seems to rule them. And that just, makes it hard for them to push beyond. They've got to keep the banker happy and all that stuff. My willingness to try stuff has now led me to, I'm a practical field engineer with Dawn Equipment now. So we're helping build some of the equipment that looks like we're gonna need in the future to make some of this stuff happen. Yeah, you using cover crops? Are you able to put those <sighs> I would say we're moving beyond cover crops to more of a companion crop, relay cropping mindset. I mean, my goal is to have a living root in the soil all the time. Mm -hmm. Even though we're froze up, like last year, we were froze up from November 1st till mid-April. But from what they're telling us, even having that living root in the soil is doing something. Even though we're froze up, I'm not smart enough. I'm going to rely on people like Buzz and you know Chris Nichols. She's been to our place already and seen some of the stuff that we're doing. 
Terry Taylor said it best here a couple weeks ago when I stopped and had supper with him. He was very tight with Mike Plummer. When you get a deal with that caliber of people, you get lazy. I'm fortunate enough we've built a network around us now where I don't have to know everything, but I know who to call. That's one of the best things that we started learning is reaching out, start bringing other people into the fold. Yes, my neighbors don't understand what I'm doing, but I can come to South Carolina and I'm understanding what you're talking about because mm -hmm. you've lived it, I've lived it. It's kind of neat. We're able to use cover crops and just as a for instance to get the cover crop established where you don't have to uh, basically when you get through harvest you want to take a break. We'll have peanuts out there and we'll spread the cover crop on the peanuts prior to digging. And when we dig the peanuts it moves enough dirt to incorporate, to incorporate it. And most of the time the cover crops that's where we get a lot of that diversity that everybody wants. I don't really like that word diversity. I like the word unity. I like the word, let's all be together. Let's don't, you know, we can celebrate being different, but dadgum, we're all on the face of this earth doing what the Lord put us here to do. Let's talk about unity instead of diversity. The cover crops, oh my gracious, have been such a, I did no till for years and years and years and years and didn't see any improvement. And then when we started putting cover crops in, then the floodgates opened. We've got all kind of creatures. I don't know even better names of creatures under the ground doing what they do. They're under here, they're feeding, they're living one with another, they're making fertilizer. You know, all that's happening under the ground that we got to feed that. We got to feed all those creatures with these cover crops. It's interesting on this intercropping. Yep. I had a young friend of mine that's farming bring me some peanuts and said, guess where these peanuts came from? I said, where? He said, that cornfield down the road that I have under irrigation. He said, when I cut the corn last week in July, first week in August, these peanuts were there from last year's crop. They volunteered. He said, I'm going to dig them. We're going to try five or ten acres next year. We're going to plant the corn, get the corn up about knee high, and we're going to plant peanuts in the middle of the road. Accidental learning opportunities. And then we're going to see I don't know what he's going to make on those peanuts, if he even can take some on the harvest, but he's got zero in them. No fungicide. We've been told we cannot grow a peanut without a fungicide. Well, there's a beautiful group of peanuts there with, that had no fungicide whatsoever. And they're breaking the rotational mold. Peanuts on peanuts. I don't know nothing oh, about growing grow. peanuts, but you you're not supposed to do that, I assume? It's <laughs> like a four-year rotation. You come back four years later. If you don't, you get in a situation where you just build up those diseases. Well, that's eerily, again, eerily similar to what we're seeing because we were told we couldn't grow food grade wheat in Iowa without fungicide and all that. Well, with the relay system now, the last four or five years, we've hit food grade wheat without a fungicide, without an insecticide, all that. Yeah. Now we're playing with malt barley. Per contract, I have to apply the fungicide on that. I will agree that yes, malt barley does need fungicide, but you know we're applying it to full canopy at that point. It's a fine line. We're running low rates and that stuff, but we're able to make quality malt barley without all the expenses. Mm -hmm. In our area, the craft brewery market is just going wild. Wow. I mean, within 25 miles of my place, we have three brewers. The biggest thing we're trying to work with now is help getting the malter going and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. To me, that's where the future is. You don't have to push near as many acres if we can focus on the quality. I think that's, you know, too many people worry about the volume anymore. They don't go after the quality. 
some of the premiums we're going after on our even our soybeans now you know last year we captured two dollars a bushel premium my beans yielded just as good as any others we harvested my inputs was you know on my whole farm last year we averaged a hundred dollars an acre out of pocket wow seed fertilizer chemical everything yeah and on the relay crop the best instance i like sharing is because it's easy figures on the one field we harvested 100 bushel an acre 40 bushel cereal rye 60 bushel soybeans easily at a nominal 12 dollars a bushel without any subsidies or anything on top of that that's 1200 dollars an acre take my 100 dollars an acre expenses which is pretty lavish on the ben run soybeans ben run cereal rye the rest goes for fertility, and we did have to use a grass herbicide, if I remember right, so $3 an acre on a grass herbicide on that. Easily, and then that $100 an acre range, okay, I had to harvest it twice. I had to plant it twice. I'll do that for $100 an acre. So I had $1,000 an acre to manage and maintain it and pay for the land rent. That pays the bills. I don't have to farm the whole county right. anymore. That's where we've been forced into getting bigger and bigger. On the road I live on, Hebron Dunbar Road. There were 23 farmers when I was in high school. I'm 70 years old. 23 farmers lived on that road, and I'm the only one there now on that road. 300 acres here, 150 acres there, and now everybody's, you know, I'm at 2,000 acres, and most of my friends are from five to 10,000 acres. And all mm -hmm. we do is pay the chemical man, pay the John Deere and international man. That's all we do. So yeah, I've got a good thing going there. I'm, so what is your cropping mix then? We have peanuts, corn, cotton, wheat, soybeans. We have a small amount of rye that we grow for our own use. We have a little bit to sell after, but mostly for our own use. I grow about 50 or 60 acres of cowpeas, the uh, old iron and clay variety. There's a big market for that. Mm -hmm. We're using them. <laughs> yeah. But these particular peas, most of these that I sell, clean them and bag them and they go to deer hunters for food plots. Might be some coming to Iowa. <laughs> They're hard to grow. We've been playing with them for five or six years and we've had one good outcome. They're a very viney animal, which is good in your cover crop. But my gracious, that combine catches the devil. And then it'll lay flat on the ground. So we've tried two things. And I'm gonna try one more thing and if it works, I'll continue if it doesn't. But this year, we've planted the first week in August, which I thought was going to be a bust, but now the little bushes are about 18 inches high and we don't have any vine to them, very little vine to them. And we'll probably cut those things, we'll probably cut them next week, week after maybe. Planting date, but you know every day, every week, every year is different. There's got to be. A, I was thinking about putting some Sudan sorghum hybrid in there. So they'd have a to place to- give them a trellis. Yeah, give them the, I've got some pollinator strips around, and we see that sorghum Sudan is growing, and it's got a, a pea growing up. And when I was a little boy, that was pretty common. They'd plant peas in the cornfield and in the cotton field. They'd snap the corn by hand and pick the peas by hand, quite obviously, and cotton the same way they'd pick the cotton by hand, and then they were peas for nutrition. Of course, that's not practical right now, I don't guess, but maybe it is from what you're saying that you're doing with the with the soybeans and the rye. Well, iron and clay cowpeas is the interseed cover crop of choice that seems to be the most consistent for our interseeding in corn. So what are you doing with those peas? We just let them go. Let them go? Yeah. 
So you're planting them in the middle of the row? Yeah, we'll get the corn about V4, V5, and we'll come in and put the interseed cowpeas in. Usually I'm putting in a pretty good mix. Cowpeas are kind of getting to be the staple. But the neat part is that goes back to 1900. The University of Tennessee did a lot of the research, and the consistent things they found back in the 1900s was cowpeas, clovers, annual ryegrass. I think you know, if you look hard enough, it's in some of the literature that we found. It's the same things that work today. Just took us a long time to relearn it. <laughs> so you're planting that pea interseeded between the rows of the corn. Are you harvesting after a frost and that pea is dead? Yeah, as soon, as soon as we get a frost, the cowpeas will just drop. Right. But see, the iron and clays usually don't vine near as much as like the red rippers and some of the other. Really? Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that it's usually in canopy. So they're not going to be quite as aggressive as a full crop. But we've showed, like with hairy vetch and stuff like that, we can produce this year. We're going to have some pretty good data with the interseed. We've actually got interseed that held over from 2017 all the way into this year. Mm -hmm. We're getting to the point where we don't worry about termination. We're more on to suppression. And cover crops are our companions. We don't try to fully terminate them because we're trying to keep that living root in there. That's some of the stuff with that organic plot that I started talking about. It's mind-blowing that when you can see a full canopy of green clover and that with corn in it, it kind of blows that we need that clean window. So that clover that you're putting in there, or the iron and clay pea, you think it's providing nitrogen for the other crop? I would believe so. I mean, Joe Clapperton will come across and tell you that if you got the AMF and all that stuff going, the mm -hmm. mycorrhizal fungi and that, through the rhizophere and that, it should be sharing and like I said, I think that's some of what we're really starting to see. But the key is on corn, some of it, you know, we all think we need to front load that nitrogen. I don't think so. I think we need to figure out the balance of where that corn plant is. We need to have sufficient nitrogen available, but not a surplus. And organic nitrogen is better than applied yeah, We use chicken litter. Yep. But like the legume, having the living legume in there, mm -hmm. Clover and corn are very good friends, so it'll share that nitrogen as the corn needs it. And then if we knock it at the right time, then it'll slough off the nodules and all that, so then it'll feed the corn in a timely fashion is what I'm starting to see. Okay. The key is going to be timing that. We'll get back to Doug Newton and Lauren Steinlogge in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Doug and Lauren as they talk about compaction and the surprising differences seen in cotton fields that were subsoiled and those that weren't. There's a guy that works for Clemson, a Bupender Farmaha, that did a plot on our farm and it was replicated across the field, cover crop, no cover crop. And his results were pretty dramatic. In fact, way more dramatic than I thought they would be. In fact, I farmed the land that this came off of the year prior to, and the guy that formed it, that this plant came from, he and I use very similar methods because he's in Buzz's little group there in our area. He subsoiled with a strip-till rig, and I didn't. I think we made similar yields. In fact, I think I made more yield. The only downside, 
that we saw was this plant will fall over, and this one won't. Yeah, no taproot. Yeah, it's got a taproot, but it's about six inches under the ground going that way. So you hit that compaction layer. Yeah, and it's not but six inches deep. That's not the hard pan. Our hard pan's at 12 to 14 inches deep, mm -hmm. so I don't know what's going on there. So I broke the strip till back out on the cotton, but I want a strip till with a green cover crop on it. I'm not going to strip till, I'm not going to kill it and then strip till it. That way it's a little easier. You know, you're disturbing a place this wide. Yep. It's a little easier on the creatures if you just do it with the green, or in my mind, who knows? You got the repair crew in place already. Yeah, they're there. And they're not, you know, you might have heard them, but you didn't kill them all. And they ought to bound back between the rows and the green stuff to still growing in the strip. But that's something that Clemson is always touted. If we don't subsoil under the row, you're going to have a problem. So yeah. Subsoil, not subsoil. And that's what we're dealing with. I think over time that we can get away from subsoiling altogether, but we've got to just cover crop, cover crop, cover crop, cover crop. Now, we've got a guy down that's in our little group. He cut his corn. He's got a dryer, so he cut his corn last week in July, planted a summer cover crop, and it's over my head right now. And now he's rolled that down and going to plant wheat in it. So within that window there that the land was going to be nothing fellow with nothing green growing on it. He's got a cover crop growing on it. He's going to build biomass. It's going to build organic matter. But it's going to take us some time. When you dig in a field like that, what are you actually seeing? Are you seeing some kind of density difference there at six inches? Or, I mean, what's making that root turn? I don't know. There's a compaction layer there, quite obviously. Our clay's about 18 inches deep. I've never dug down to the clay that I didn't find roots in it where I had cover crop. So if those roots can go through it, why didn't that cotton root go through? Still a lot of questions to answer. Mm -hmm. It's intriguing. I mean, the biggest thing cover crops allowed us to do, is started getting compaction alleviation through the cover crops versus the strip till. And then we started getting the nutrient cycling. So then it's like, why strip? You know, if I don't have compaction, I don't have fertility issues. Why am I strip till? That's right. You don't need to do it. Yeah, and that's what allowed us to get away from it. 2015, when I sold the strip till bar, and Controlled traffic, are you guys on controlled traffic? I mean, would that be part of the issue? I don't think so. It passes through the field without? We run, you know, our sprayers on a 90 foot boom that runs at, a, at an angle across the field. Once we plant, we don't go back in there with a tractor. It's all done with the sprayer. But right. I don't understand why the cover crop root will go through that layer and that cotton didn't. But I've pulled up a lot of cotton plants and everybody that subsoils has got that tap root and everybody that doesn't subsoil has got roots like that. Wouldn't part of it be the moisture retention? The plants not sensing the need to go deeper. Somebody told us that, you know, they don't need to go any deeper. If it's got sufficient moisture, it's not yeah. gonna send down more roots. I pulled up a plant and there was a feeder root off of that cotton plant that went at about a 45 degree angle across to the next row, which is 40 inches away, this way. I don't know how far it was that way, it's probably five feet long. And that feeder root went all the way across the row into the next row. So those roots were just matted like that. But the problem, being, and I had one of my buddies just mention that earlier in the last week, that their cotton has fallen over and that's what it is. He's not subsoiling and his cotton plant doesn't have a root that can hold itself up. So I don't know what we're gonna do. I think it'll heal itself, but it's just gonna take time. And I'm thinking that maybe 
I'm like on a three-year, actually a two-year rotation. The next year I'm going to go to a three-year rotation. And if I live long enough, I'll go to a four-year rotation. hope my son will continue with that. And until we can kind of wean ourselves off of that, if we break that compaction and plant a cover crop, in my mind, that cover crop's going to keep that open. Wouldn't you think? What are you using for cover crop, I guess? We're using, uh, this is what I use this year, use all kinds of stuff. I used to rape. I had some cow peas I threw in there, even though they're going to die when the frost comes. Usually frost about November 4th, 5th, 6th. Got rye, we've got clover, we've got vetch. Seems like there's something. Turnip. I wonder how uh, they call it biostrip till, where you'd precision place your, like a taproot. Yeah, right like, where you start leaning more towards the radish and stuff like that. Your, you know, the rape should have a good taproot on it. Yeah, that's the reason I, I used the rape is because of I knew it had a taproot similar to what that tillage radish does. Precision place the radish. Instead of scatter them, get them right where that row is going to be. And then that would do your subsoiling. I mean, Dave Brandt's done that for years mm -hmm. with the white planter and that. And just precision place that cover crop, broadcast the rest, but then right where you want that compaction alleviation to help get that taproot. I'm shooting from the head of air, so. <laughs> well, you know, we thought about that. And we can do that. We can do that. But it's about as economical is to run the strip till it is to run that planter again. So I just haven't done it. Be nice to have a rig that you could do that in one pass and I'm sure your person could figure out how to do that. Um, probably a, a grain drill is with a small seed box and direct that one where you want it. That's how we started with a lot of that stuff, just setting it up the way we want it. Well, they always say we have nearby inventory and that's what we try to figure out first. <laughs> and once we get it working, then we pretty it up. We had a guy from California that was interested in getting some cotton that had been grown in a regenerative manner. And we sold him some cotton last year. And I intended to try about five acres of organic cotton this year. But you know, it's hard to find a seed, a seed that you would think that you could make enough yield on. Because there's how much is organic cotton worth? I don't know. You can look on the internet and it's worth from a, a dollar to three or four dollars. How do you? If you're making 800 to 1,000 pounds conventional cotton, GMO cotton, and go down to two or 300 pounds of organic cotton, somebody's got to pay the freight. And I'd rather it be somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it, I would love to do that. I'd love to do some organic cotton. But anyhow, that's something to think about. Talking to you makes me want to bring that back to the front burner instead of the back burner, try that organic cotton. We used to do it. We used to do a lot of this. Used to do. The biggest challenge I foresee right now is security of these markets. How do we get to where, yes, we can produce it and everybody wants it, but right now dealing with some of the people we have to deal with to get these premiums seems to have an aversion to paperwork. I'll do a lot on my word, <laughs> but when you start risking the whole farm on your word, that's where it gets scary. And that's why we backed off some of it this year. Just. When you're supposed to be paid January 1st and you're sitting there middle of April, haven't got a check to clear yet, it gets a little tight. That's right. Yeah, and a lot of these people that are doing that are just don't have the capital. We experienced that with flax. We've experienced that with a couple of niche products that all sounded good and all was good, but the guy couldn't make any money, therefore we couldn't pay you. And just luckily it was on a small scale. 
Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the no-till authorities featured in this series, then join us in January for our annual National No-Tillage Conference. Every year we bring together top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during thought-provoking general sessions, expert-led no-till classrooms, farmer-to-farmer roundtable discussions, and exclusive workshops. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all of the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operation reach new heights. Listeners of this podcast can receive a registration discount. Just check your email for the priority code. Now let's get back to Doug Newton and Lauren Seinlage. On your longer term stuff, then are you starting to see water holding capacity and stuff like that? I saw very quickly that even no-till without the cover crop, that our plants would not stress like our neighbors that were disking, bedding, and planting. Our plants would not stress. It'd be about a week later, but when it hit the wall, it took it hard. See the same thing with cover crop. We'll go a week or 10 days without wilting when my neighbors are wilting. And they are strip tilling, but they don't use cover crop. But uh, I don't know what happens if it hits the wall. It's not good. It's not good. It hurts that cotton, hurts that yield. Theirs has been stressed for a week or 10 days longer, but theirs seems to recover better than mine would and that may just be in my mind. I don't know. Well, when they're stressed, they're sending that root down, where yours is feeding off that surface moisture, probably. And then when that tank runs empty, it's over with. It's over. Yeah. We did a little test this summer. It's called a saturation test. Take a scoop of soil, and just I put it in pans and let it air dry for a couple weeks. And you weigh out 100 grams of soil of each one you want to test. What we did here is on this one. I've got props. What's the difference between them two? Oh, it's quite obvious. The darkness and I see a wormhole there. This one's the inner seed. This one held 40% of the moisture. It's held 68 grams of water on 100 gram soil. All we did is we just saturated it, let it drip dry, and then weigh it. Oh, okay. Did the same thing on this one. Held 37 grams of moisture versus 68. And the difference is this was interseeded. Well, this is across the fence. This is my neighbor's. This is what you would consider conventional sporadic no-till, I guess. I got you. We didn't do any infiltration tests this year, but I know last year we did. We were trying to see the tram lines versus in between, and 2012 was the first time NRCS came out and did a bunch of the soil health testing on our fields, and our tram lines were better than my neighbor's native prairie. Wow. That's some of the test data that's coming out this year. With the relay cropping system, we can match or beat native soils in about three to four years of a rotation. We've got organic matter starting to climb up above 5% per easy. No. That's just a dream in our place. Build it, 5%. they'll come. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're going corn on corn on corn? No, no, I've actually diversified away from corn on corn. We're corn beans, cereal rye, winter wheat, malt barley. With the relay, if we get window, we'll throw the buckwheat in with the soybeans and then harvest the buckwheat and the soybeans together. And didn't you clean that? Yeah, you separate, separate it out with the cleaner. How do you clean? Do you have a cleaner? Yeah, but I, if we're going to upscale that, we need a lot bigger cleaner and better capacity. 
Our biggest challenge is we've got frost on the back end. So if I don't have a window, we won't do it. The day we pop the small grain out of there, if we have a window, I've got buckwheat sitting there. We'll chase the combine with the drill, putting the buckwheat basically where the cereal crop was. And then that'll be our weed control and that on the soybeans. And it's a nice companion. And the soybeans seem happy with the buckwheat. So you plant the buckwheat and then come back and plant the beans? Or you're planting the beans? No, the, be but the beans, in a perfect world, when I go to bed in the fall, our fields are all set up to relay crop. As the winter plays out, we start figuring out what the stand is on the cereals and that. If I'm not happy early in the game, we'll switch a field to corn early. If it looks promising, then we'll plant the soybeans in there. For us, the last couple of years we've broke frost about mid-April. I'll be planting beans in there the first week or so of May. And then we'll pop the cereal crop out of there. So the soybeans and the cereal crop are growing together until mid to late July. If I can be close to July 20th, that's kind of my deadline to get the buckwheat in there. If we're popping the cereals out, then I'll put buckwheat in. And then the fall, we'll harvest the buckwheat and the soybeans together. So okay, three, three, crop, three crops in one year. Mm -hmm. I made the mistake of telling somebody about two, three years ago, perfect rotation for me right now would be relay malt barley and soybeans with buckwheat in there, relay winter wheat. The next rotation and soybeans with buckwheat in there, and then relay cereal rye with soybeans, and then use corn as a cleanup crop in Iowa. <clears throat> but now Mother Nature is challenging that whole theory because last year we didn't get uh, cereal rye until November. It was November 1st by the time we got planting. For some reason, our beans just don't want to die anymore. Last year we pushed soybeans all the way back to the last week of October. This year we're sitting same situation. Our beans just don't want to die. Well, last year we had everything drilled by November 1st, and by November 3rd we were froze solid. Wow. None of it germinated till spring. So as I started seeing what was happening over winter, two fields I knew early in the game that's where the clover was and all that. I was like, nope, we're not even going to drill them. We drilled everything else with cereal rye, just because it was getting late. As we started seeing the stand come in the spring, we had 200 acres of malt barley. We wrote that off pretty early, winter malt barley. And the cereal rye, we started seeing the stand on that. We ended up, we only kept 85 acres for relay. And on that, we actually only harvested 75. We just Cutting in, and it's like, well, this is, we ended up doing 16 bushel an acre on the rye, which ain't good, but at least I got enough seed for myself. Right. I cut the ends off the other day, just I thought we could run, but uh, we were hitting 55, 60 on beans on there, just on the end rows. So I think them are probably going to be some, again, them are going to be some of the best beans we harvest this fall, mm -hmm. the relays. Because with all the moisture we've been getting, we, we're in a wet cycle right now. Last two years, we've had 15 to 20 inches a year surplus, and we're all pattern tiled and all that stuff. We're building our water holding capacity, but I'm to the point I don't want to add more tile. I would rather try to figure out how to grow it out than drain it out. That's where the relay comes in. We're using water more year-round versus just that peak cycle. If you listen to Chris Nichols when she was at my place last year, the key thing that stuck in my mind is we all talk about sinking carbon. Well, your average corn and bean plant only sinks carbon about five to six weeks of the year. So here we can sit here and beat our chest saying, we're doing good, we're sinking carbon. 
But until you figure out how to keep that a living plant there 24-7, you're never going to reach the potential of sinking that carbon as much as people think they are. That's where we've got to figure out how to test this carbon. We're working with Indigo a little bit right now and their carbon program and that stuff. But we're trying to figure out exactly how much carbon we're actually sinking. They talk about two to three ton potential. I think I've read we could be up to eight tons an acre of carbon. So that brings in the equation. We've got these people talking, hey, we'll apply humates, we'll apply biochar, we'll apply this. Well, anybody that's good with a calculator can start figuring out if we're applying, if the true potential's there that we're applying eight tons to the acre, how much product would you have to buy to equal that? That's right. It comes down to that simple management. Yeah. You know, we can manage our way through this, and then everybody wants to talk climate change. I'm not even going to get into that. But right now, I'll point out two things. If it wasn't for climate change, West Union and Iowa would be under a glacier. <laughs> And number two, I don't know what the heck's going on the last couple of years, but something's happening. We are in such an ebb and flow cycle right now. Are we going to keep doing the same thing, or are we going to figure out how to do something different and manage for it? That's our jobs as farmers. What I see in my competition and other farmers is they want to buy a product to replace management. Management and operating equipment is basically what we get paid for anymore. Why do we want to give them two things away? The risk-reward just isn't there. Where do you see your operation in five, ten years? If things don't change, somebody else will be owning everything. We're in the worst financial position than we've ever been in. And we could make a decent crop and still not have the wherewithal to satisfy all our debt. It's every year. You lay it on the line every year. I don't know how it is in Iowa, but... That would be 99% of the farmers, I would believe, yeah. right now. Like I said, that's been the nice... I'd have to say we got backed into what we're doing right now. Survival mode. We got forced into survival mode quite a few years ago, and we never came out of it. That's what's forced us to change the things we've changed. And It's hard to jump off of that moving train, isn't it? Yeah, but when you don't have options, it becomes yeah, Somebody pushing. <laughs> when you get pushed off, it's a different deal. Huh? <laughs> that's why I enjoy sharing, because... I don't want people to have to go through what we went through to get to that point. It's not fun, but when you cut the cords or however you want to look at it, that's when the fun starts happening. Thanks to Doug Newton and Lauren Steinlage for their no-till insights. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the annual National No-Tillage Conference in January. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store, to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.